And another, another part of why we started this was as an affiliate, we ended up driving like tens of thousands of depositors to uh, the sports books. And we always asked ourselves, what would happen if we just kept the customer ourselves and just monetize the customer? Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear episode 70 of the Betting Startups podcast with Justin Park from Betty, which is an entertainment company innovating at the intersection of real money online casino and casual mobile gaming. But before we get started, I wanted to ask a quick favor. If you're enjoying the podcast and getting value from it, please consider helping us out by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you're listening to this on. And if you're feeling extra generous, Leave us a review to let us know that you're enjoying it and help other people discover the podcast too. All right, we are back on the Betting Startups podcast. And once again, we are welcoming a guest host for this episode who is now officially a two-time guest host, friend of the podcast, Benji Cherniak. Benji, great to have you back with us. How's everything been going on your end since we last spoke with you a few months ago? Uh, two and counting, Jesse, and it's uh, going very well on my side. Thanks for allowing me to, uh, to host the pod. Everything great on my end. Uh, we're get, heading into the summer months now and still uh, a couple of conferences before uh, on my end, we kind of shut it down a bit for the season. Um, but yeah, everything's going well. Awesome. So this time around, you spoke with Justin Park from Betty, which is a super interesting new business in the space. As always, it'd be great, Benji, if you could tee this one up for us and give folks listening a quick preview of your chat with Justin. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know Justin, you know, first of all, like in having a conversation with him, there were certain things that I didn't know about Justin and I'd known the guy for seven or eight years, but I think what resonates with me the most about this particular conversation, he's obviously a very impressive guy, very accomplished. And then this is his third go around. He's a third time founder. And, and as you'll hear him uh, in the podcast, he alludes to himself as kind of like a career entrepreneur. And as you hear the progression from his first startup to his second startup, which was QL Gaming Group uh, within our space, uh, in turn sold to Entercom, and, and, and now his third startup, which is Betty, you can kind of see the progression of going from something smaller to something still small but mid-sized to now going after something with a much bigger TAM and just a bit more experience and accomplished now and, and really ready for what we would call prime time as an entrepreneur, so to speak. Well, as always, Benji, we appreciate you stepping in. It was an awesome discussion. As you alluded to, we'll probably have you back here sooner than later. But for now, we'll get on to the episode with Justin from Betty. Hey, everyone. This is Benji Cherniak, and welcome to the Betting Startups podcast. I'm sitting in as a guest host in place of uh, Jesse, who you all know. Uh, great to be here and excited to be stealing the mic for an episode and have the honor, pleasure, and privilege of welcoming Justin Park, the founder of Betty, to, to the podcast. Justin, I know you're just off a flight and uh, coming in from overseas, so hopefully not too jet-lagged today, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, having me, Benji. This is, this is awesome. Yeah, it should be fun. So, I mean, I've known you for, I don't know, how long is it now? Seven, eight years, maybe? Yeah, I remember the moment we met was uh, at that it was like one of the first gaming shows in New York. And, uh, I remember seeing, I, I, I mean, I knew what Don Best was and I kind of like sheepishly went up to you and was like, are you, uh, are you Benji Sherniak? And then of course, obviously you were. And, and you know, well, interestingly, going back to those days, now that I think about it, you actually initially became a client of Don Best utilizing some of our data to power some of the stuff that you were doing at the time for Chihuahua gaming group, if I'm not mistaken. 
And, exactly. and then we just kind of, I got a bit more involved in what you were doing from an investment standpoint and the relationship grew from there. But let's back up a little bit because for the folks that don't know you and even myself, I don't really know, like you're not a first time entrepreneur. You're not a second time or founder, not a, not a second time founder, but with Betty, and we're going to get into Betty, this is actually your third go around as a third time founder. And, and as I did a bit of research, I realized I don't even know all that much about your first venture, which, which predates your time in the gaming space. So maybe give us a bit of backstory as how you got started as an entrepreneur and the first go around with that video marketing platform, uh, just to give us some perspective of you as a person and entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, so I graduated in 2010 and I came to New York right after that. My first job was in healthcare consulting. And in that year, I basically started a side project, starting something on my own and, and becoming a full-time founder. So did the, did the usual things, just like save a bunch of money, didn't take vacations, cash out the vacation days. And then I went out and I started my first business, which the initial uh, version of it was basically filming apartments for real estate brokers for marketing purposes. So we got really good at filming apartments in New York and we filmed thousands of them. And what happened from there is we started getting requests for other types of videos, like promotional videos for businesses or kind of talking head type videos. So we started doing those. And then I realized that instead of building capabilities in house to be able to service different types of requests, like why don't I just have like a stable of like freelancers? I can do this. And that's kind of where the marketplace concept was born out of. So we built this network of 2000 videographers and animators all over the country, and also in, in Europe. And the value prop was, hey, we can create videos for you inexpensively and quickly through this network of freelancers and also the software layer that helped manage the video production process because video production is very cumbersome. So, you, you know, as an example, you know, a rough cut would be uploaded into this portal. You can make comments on what you want changed. And then that would be relayed to the videographer and it made it simple. So it was this combination of like uh, network and then, and then tools to essentially produce audio, custom video content at scale. That was the business. And how many freelancers like at your peak did you have on the platform? Do you recall? Yeah, it was a couple, like a couple thousand. Cool. We had, and we out to hunt, you know, hundreds of them. So we ended up working with some pretty big brands like Microsoft and Citibank and Turkish Airlines and Bacardi and all these, you know, and I was like 21 when we started that business, 22 and grew it and we ended up selling it. I mean, it wasn't a, an amazing outcome, but um, that was like 24, 25 when that happened and then went from there. Yeah, but you know what? Like it still set the stage for you as an entrepreneur, right? That over that three year period, that experience, learning and building the business, having an exit of some sort, even if it wasn't a life-changing exit, just going through that process had to have set the table for where you are now and the things you did thereafter. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what was, how did you get into our space coming out of that experience? How did you get into the iGaming space, uh, the QL gaming group, which initially was more fantasy focused than betting focused. So maybe give me a bit of perspective as to how you transitioned there. So we go back to 2015. And this is when DraftKings and FanDuel were just doing daily fantasy sports and they were really starting to rev up marketing and you can kind of see it everywhere. Like ads were on subways and TV and it was like big. And one of my, one of my best friends from college at the time was the number one ranked DFS player in the world. He went by Max Dallery. That was his handle. And so he made millions of dollars playing DFS professionally. And he lived in Ray John Rondo's old apartment in Boston, like young, young, like my age, like 25, 26, and he made, again, millions of dollars doing this. 
and had, he had this following on Twitter. Um, and so he, in short, knew the category really well, knew that building lineups or DFS is cumbersome. And he had built proprietary tools himself to build these lineups. And so that knowledge, plus the fact that he had all these followers on Twitter, we used that to, to launch a product called RotoQL, which was a daily fantasy sports analytics and tool set. Um, and the value prop was helping DFS players create better lineups quickly. And then we, we, and we charged a subscription. So it became pretty profitable quickly. Um, the Q4 of 2015, we launched, and then I think we got profitable like maybe eight or nine months after that. Yeah. And that's right around the time that I met you. And I think that you were profitable then and, you know, just enhancing the product and augmenting. And then of course, you know, you shifted from fantasy into, to the sports betting realm. Um, when was that? Was that around the time of path, but how did that, how did that kind of play out? So yeah, we had raised some capital. Our first institutional money was from Boston Seed. They were the first investors in DraftKings. And I actually had met them when I was starting my first business. So that's a one example of how that first company helped me in the second one. Um, there was already familiarity with me prior. They didn't invest in my first company, but I had met them. And when we raised that capital, the definition of success changed. We needed a business that could return uh, something meaningful to investors. And the DFS analytics space is just small. The TAM is small. So I intuitively kind of knew that we needed to go after other markets. And so we started building a sister product called BetQL, which is the same, which is the same value problem, helping sports bettors make more informed decision, decisions using data and tools. And initially it was going to be aimed at just the offshore market. And we ended up launching it like a month or two before PASPA was repealed. There was no foresight. That was just pure dumb luck. I didn't even know that sports betting was, I wasn't following, you know, the, the legislation. And so the timing was just perfect and lucky. So in short, we were already building this other product in advance. And so we launched it again, right when PASPA was repealed. And we were one of the first products in the market, us and, and then Action Network. And, and so... You know, obviously, from the, you allude to there being some lucky timing and you put yourself in position for that to happen. And then what was the trajectory like over that next couple of years coming out of path? But it didn't take that long to get to a point where, where you and your investors were able to realize a return and some M&A opportunities came along. So maybe talk us through, you know, the growth of the company, um, the M&A piece and the sale to Entercom and how all that played out. Yeah, so the, the the business really had three chapters. Chapter one, like I mentioned, was the was the DFS analytics tool. We then kind of moved this entire business to sports betting analytics through subscription. But really, where it ended was affiliate. So we built this 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 product called BetQL. We'd all these sports betters, and then we started figuring out how to drive traffic to the operators, and that's really where the revenue became more meaningful. And this was, if you look at twenty twenty. Two years after PASPA was repealed, at this, at this moment, you had maybe like five or six states that had legalized it. There was more proof points that this was a thing and not just a, a niche market. And businesses at that point, you know, larger enterprises were then really starting to figure out how do we enter this market in a meaningful way? And the, the media category was obviously one big part of that. And so there was a, a company called Entercom, which we branded as Odyssey, and they own 200, 250 terrestrial radio stations, including a lot of the big sports stations. So in New York, they own WFAN. In Boston, they own WEEI. Um, and these are like 
you know, very, very popular sports talk shows in those markets. And the business is big. They do like a billion, billion and a half a year in revenue. And they wanted to get into sports betting and also diversify away from just pure radio driven ad revenue becoming become more digital. So what BetQL presented was a product that already had a sports betting audience, had a subscription revenue component, already was licensed for affiliates in every state possible. So it was all set up for then they could just drop their um, traffic on, on top of our, our product and scale it because they had those sports stations. And that's, that, was, that, that was how it happened. So we ended up closing that deal November of 2020. So just backing up a bit, because we'll get into life post intercom and post sale and talk about the transition into where you're at now. But backing up a little bit, like you kind of began the business as B2C subscription fantasy, then grew the business to, to B2C subscription sports book right around the time of Patsburg Appeal. And then from there, added in the third element, which was the affiliate side and getting the state-by-state licenses in order to, to drive some of your B2C customer base to, to the sports books. What was a challenge for you as an entrepreneur? And, and I get it that the B2C and the success of your B2C is what drove the affiliate B2B as it pertains to those sportsbook operators. But kind of managing a B2C and a B2B simultaneously, uh, uh, you know, a number of young entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs that are facing that struggle where they have a B2C component to B2B and only so many resources and managing it simultaneously. What was that struggle? Or maybe it wasn't a struggle. What was that challenge like for you and how did you guys overcome that? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that that transition period was probably one of the most difficult in my life and career so far. There were, there were a couple of tactical challenges and then one more emotional challenge. I'll start with the, the two tactical ones. One was we'd raised capital for a fantasy sports business that had limited upside. And so transitioning the business into sports betting and, and creating a whole new product line required additional capital, but we had already raised money at a certain valuation where it was kind of hard for us to attract new, new money, right? We're kind of like an awkward teenager at that stage. And so just even getting like an extra million bucks to do this was extremely difficult. So there was capital formation challenges. The other one is to what you said, you know, we're, we're, we're operating a fantasy business. We're trying to start another one in parallel. That's a lot to do. And also you're learning, there's a learning curve, right? Like DFS and sports betting are different. So we're also learning about a new industry simultaneously. So there's just a lot going on. And I would say the hardest, hardest part of this whole thing was admitting to myself that we were basically starting over. Like fantasy business, no one really cared about. Once sports spending was legalized, it was just not very relevant. And we put, you know, two, three years into that. Now we have to prove a whole new business. And I was like, wow, you know, so admitting to yourself that you actually have to start over, that's hard. You know, you talk about, you talk about when you started out the fantasy, having a little bit of TAM on the D2D subscription side, and then there's probably truth to that. Yet at the same time, you were able to attract some pretty sharp and astute investors you allude to Boston Seed and their involvement. I don't want to start naming all of your investors. I'm familiar with some of them, but it's a pretty impressive list of fairly astute VC firms and, and high net worth individuals. What was their buy-in initially? What do you think that they saw as it pertains to the opportunity initially? And obviously it ended up to be a reasonable result for everyone. And many of those investors are with you now as you embark on the next chapter, which is many that we'll get to. But what do you think was their mindset coming into this thing as it pertains to wanting to align with you? I think there were a few things. One, I always marketed the opportunity as a, a single or a double. 
I never said it was going to be a home run. And I think that transparency, and it, and it became a singular double. So I think that transparency resonated with people. Two, we made a really concerted effort in finding investors that came from different disciplines that were still tangential. So for example, when we're building the sports betting business, you know, we, we found investors in the UK. So like Sanford Loudon at Oakville and Paul Beattie and Ralph Topping, the former CEO of William Hill. And at this time, like, you know, these people have now like, you know, that you've probably co-invested with Sanford a number of times since. I think this was the first time that syndicate was put together, right? So like finding these people and being, I would say the first one to find them and kind of put them together was hard, but it was a lot of digging, a lot of digging and just kissing a lot of frogs and then, you know, finding people that wanted to get exposure to the U.S. I mean, that was the other piece of this, right? Like sports betting, legalizing in 2018 with New Jersey, that moment in time, there was two competing thoughts. One was, wow, this is really exciting. The U.S. market could be huge. The other one was, well, how many more states are going to light up? And what does the opportunity really look like? You know, can you actually build a scaled business? So there was a curiosity around the U.S. market. And we were one of the, I would say, few companies at the time that was that was here and trying to figure it out. Cool. So so look, you know, you sell to Entercom and, uh, you know, we could probably spend a, a chapter of this discussing your experiences going from entrepreneur to, to employee at, at Entercom and what that journey was like and something that I, I can relate to. Uh, post my sale of Don Best as an employee thereafter uh, at the time scientific games, but maybe we'll kind of skip through that chapter. How long were you there before you parted ways? Pretty much like a year on the dot. So you were there a year and, and then you moved on. And, and now here we are perhaps a year or two years after that. And then you're in the thrones of, of your, of your new startup, Betty, where you've transitioned from, you know, the kind of fantasy and sports betting realm right into the iGaming realm and the iCasino realm. And, and I obviously want to talk about that pivot, but, you know, you, you talk about how when you positioned your first venture or your second venture, rather, Betty, to, to some pretty astute investors, your transparency and positioning it as a single to a double. And that's exactly where, as you allude to, it ended up as a single to a double. But I vividly recall when you began presenting to folks the Betty opportunity, you're not searching for a single or a double on this one. You know, you're, you're kind of going for broke on a real B2C and I uh, forget the exact verbiage, but that you're thinking big on this one is kind of how you always positioned it. And obviously this is your third go around, a bit more mature, you know, a little bit more under the belt in terms of experience. So, you know, maybe talk to us a little bit about what was the motivation and the inspiration to Betty and a bit about what Betty is and, and what Betty does and where you're at. Yeah, so Betty... Some of the inspiration is just around my journey in general as a founder, and, and some of it's just specific to the gaming industry. I'll start with the first. So as you said, this is my third business, and I always thought of entrepreneurship as a kind of a career path. It's something you, you do over a long period of time, and you, and you make incremental improvement. So I always visualized working up towards some, the big one, quote unquote, right? This, we're swinging for the fences. We're going for a home run, and I'm ready for it because, A, I have the experience. I have the network. And my life is de-risked enough where I can turn down smaller acquisition offers along the way. And then, you know, I've always wanted to prove that I can build a number of, you know, a business that could be, an, you know, a market leader. I mean, that's always been a, an ambition of mine. So this is like non-gaming inspiration for this. When it comes to gaming itself, there was a, there was a few through lines here that, that got us to Betty. One was I, and I pulled this email out um, 
I email myself ideas. So on November 15th, 2017, I wrote to myself, betting products for women. So that was five years before we closed our pre-seed. So the idea was always in the back of my head around kind of niche audiences that, that drive a lot of revenue, women being one, I would say that, you know, Spanish speaking population being another one. So this is something that was always there. The other thread was, I remember going to my first ICE conference in 2018. I was in one of the uh, talks and then someone was basically saying, yeah, like all the money is made in casino. And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? But that always sort of stuck in the back of my head too. So those two concepts have just sort of been there for a long time. And I guess what I should say, what is Betty? Betty, Betty is an online casino. And the, the foundational insight is that half of the Ike Casino TAM in the US is driven by women playing slots. And they're being underserved by um, the incumbents, which are the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world. And those products are, are fantastic, but there really are sports books at their core that happen to offer casino games. So there's a dislocation in the market that we're going after. So Betty is casino only, no sports book. We only offer slots. So no Pope, no blackjack, no roulette. And it's built on an, an in-house platform. But we're also adding a lot of uh, gamification to the experience as well, which we, which we can talk about. So that's what Betty is. And another, another part of why we started this was as an affiliate, we ended up driving like tens of thousands of depositors to uh, the sports books. And we always asked ourselves, what would happen if we just kept the customer ourselves and just monetize the customer? So that was the other kind of piece that was in the back of our heads too. So all of that kind of came together and that's how Betty sort of formed. So, so you know, first of all, it's interesting that, you know, the formation of the idea begins in 2017 and yet you only begin to dig in and work on it. Post 2020, after you, after you, you exited from Intercom and then moved on and, and began to kind of think about what project might be. I remember those early days when you were kind of doing some digging and some research to test out hypothesis that this market can be successful. You know, obviously at the time when you thought of it in 2017, it was an idea. How much validation did you need to do before, before? planting your stake in the ground and determining this is definitively what we're going to do. So yeah, great question. So I, I left Intercom October of 2021 and we, we raised our seed round March of 2022. So in that window, we interviewed, we initially interviewed like 15 male casino players and then another call it 60 or 70 female casino players. I mean, we've since talked to over 200 female casino players, but at that time, that was the, that was the research we did. And without going too much into detail, what we figured out was that there's kind of like, and not, not to be too reductive, but there's kind of two, two different types of gamblers. One would be men who bet on sports and also play blackjack and poker. And then the other, the other part, it, women who play slots and they're like completely different players. Right. And we figured that women who play casino also only play slots. Right. It, of the 200 people we've interviewed, like 97, 98% of them only play slot. That was an interesting finding. And then we figured out that slots actually drive 75% of the TAM, of casino TAM, both online and brick and mortar. So we're like, whoa, there's a lot of men who play. And it's not like it's it's not like they're a niche player. They drive the market, like meaningful revenues. And that's when the light bulb went off, like, whoa, there's something big here. Yeah. So it's interesting because when I think of 
a number of the other companies, both in our space and other spaces that are in male dominated industries, I think of female founders who see niches where they as a consumer feel as though they aren't being spoken to. And you look at startups like Just Women Sports and, and the Gist and our space, and there's so many others that, that are typically headed up by female founders who live and breathe the experience of feeling they're not being catered to. And from an authenticity perspective, can speak to creating an experience that does speak to them. We, when I look at Betty, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative light, the founding team is, is, I think, all male, right? And, and obviously, you can't speak to the experience in that way, yet there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. You're seeing the void in the marketplace. You're seeing uh, uh, an opportunity to create an experience for a, a group of people who, in your view, aren't being catered to in as, in as, in as authentic a way as, as can be. So how do you maintain that level of authenticity, that level of purpose in terms of how you deliver an experience to a group and a subset when you're not part of that group or subset? Yeah, so I will say that we do have one co-founder who is a woman, so we're not all male, but in order to, to, your, to your question, offer an authentic experience, a lot of it comes from just first principle thinking and doing the homework. So like I said, we've, we've, we've interviewed over 200 women at this point. I obviously am not a woman. I'd give myself an F minus when it comes to being a woman, but I would give myself an A minus on kind of being a cultural anthropologist and just really doing the work and putting myself in, in the customer's shoe. So a lot of the, lot of the foundation, the, the foundational insights came directly from the customer. So although we're, I am not the customer, they came from the customer. And then since then, we've also kind of put the, you know, we've really operationally, we've operationalized this as well. So, you know, of our non-engineering headcount, you know, 66% of the team are actually women, right? And furthermore, anything that the customer sees visually has been designed by a woman. And every piece of content that you read, either on the website or customer support, all of that's been written by women. All of our customer support agents are women. There's nothing that you experience that was not produced by women. I mean, the backend technology, yes, there's a lot of men building it, but from the actual experience itself, it's, it's, it's female-led. Justin, the cultural anthropologist, I like it. I, I should go off topic here and mention that uh, when it comes to our industry and our space, I mean, you have your own sense of style. You rock the baseball hats as well as anyone I know. If we were to go like you versus Lloyd Danzig rocking the baseball hat, I put it as a tie. Do you give yourself an edge over him? I think so, because I've just been, I think I've been around longer. Uh, yeah, I think you have been around longer than Lloyd in our, in our industry. You also used to rock that Patagonia vest. Is that still part of like your, your, I haven't seen it as often with you lately. That's still part of your style repertoire. Have you outgrown that? You do the vest. I upgraded. I have a Montclair vest now. So. Right. Right. After the exit, you go from the, the Patagonia to Montclair. I get it. I see yeah. that. I don't shine shoes anymore, as they say. Got it. Got it. Talk to me a bit about the brand with Betty. And one of the things that really impressed me is. You know, it's tough for, especially for a first-time entrepreneur, now you're a third-time entrepreneur, you know, for, for most folks in the space that are going out and they've got some great ideas and generally don't have all that much, especially for some of the younger entrepreneurs in our space or any space just getting going, it's not easy to raise that initial capital. And I'm sure it was a challenge for you with, with QL when you're going out there, even though you had some relationships you formed with your first go-around uh, uh, as a 21 or 22-year-old. But, but in this one... One of the interesting things is when you went out to look for a lead for the round, 
that lead investor actually became you. So talk to me a bit about what your mindset was there, putting your money where your mouth is, leading the rounds, and how you kind of view the fundraising track as you're going after a much bigger tab and will need a lot more capital. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the pre-seed, I, I did lead myself. It was a $1.8 million round and I did you know, half of it. There were a few things. One, I'm a true believer in what we're doing and I want as much ownership business as possible. So there's a greed element. Two, I, I knew that if I put my own money in, I'd operate the business differently and take it more seriously and probably make better decisions. So I wanted to have some sort of safeguard around being complacent because when you have a successful asset, there are a lot of investors that have a heuristic of, oh, investing, you know, founders that have done it before. So I didn't want to go down that path, right? I really wanted to like treat this like an internship like they want. So that was also part of it. And then, and then the last piece is when you, when you have a company and you're raising capital as the CEO, you're, you have a fiduciary responsibility and as a, as a board member, you have, a, you have a fiduciary responsibility to return capital to your investors. That is the, that is the number one goal. That is your job. And I don't think people really make that explicit. So by leading the round, I'm able to also curate the investor base and align interests around what success looks like and make sure that I can manage the business and the shareholders to a very successful outcome and not have competing interests that may derail the business from having a great, a great outcome. So all of that kind of went into it. You know, because we, this podcast is geared towards startups in our space. There's a lot of folks who have startups who are listening in now. And, and as a third time founder, you know, valuation becomes a bit of a sticky point because coming out of the 2019, 2020 boom, there were some valuations that weren't all that practical, both from an M&A perspective, as well as for some of the startups that were setting valuations that were relatively high based on successes around them. And then when the world fell apart a little bit in 2021, 2022, and things came crashing back down a little bit, some folks found themselves in positions where they had to do flat rounds or down rounds. How do you think about raising capital? What kind of either advice or thought process would you give to some of the perhaps first-time entrepreneurs? And part of it for you as a third-time entrepreneur is you could probably justify a slight bump up in valuation because you've delivered in the past. How much of that goes through your thought process as you're thinking about raising funds, both in pre-seed and, and how, how thoughtful should entrepreneurs be to what they're raising in the early rounds in terms of what that will mean as they go to the later rounds? I've thrown a bunch of questions at you here. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about your thought process as it relates to fundraising. Yeah. So there are a few questions in there. I'll just kind of riff a little bit, but when I was building the last business, our mutual friend and, and fellow co-investor, Mark Mariani, who's a, who's a a legend in the space in his own right. He's the man. He's the man. He probably gave me some of the best advice was, Justin, all you have to do is get a W, right? Just get a W. And I think a lot of first time or second time founders overthink the valuation and dilution where, dude, just make some money. Like just get the W, put some points on the board, right? That's what you really have to do. And so I always had that. That was a central, you know, concept for me, fundraising. So what, what that actually means is, when you fundraise and you and you and you're negotiating around valuation, you know valuation is a, is a double-edged sword. On one end, the higher it is, the less dilution you have. On the flip side, is the higher it is, you lose optionality on future M and A. So to put differently, the higher a company's valued, the more a buyer has to pay for it to justify the price to the investors. And so if you connect that thought with just get the W, what happens is don't try to maximize for 
sort of the highest valuation, just, you know, raise, raise capital at a reasonable rate where you and the investors and the ultimate buyer of the company are all happy with where it is. That's, that's, it's, it's, you're triangulating those three things, the founders, the investors, and the buyer of the business ultimately. Yeah. But it's not an easy juggling act, right? Because those are three moving dynamics. And in particular, for, for first-time entrepreneurs, they want to protect that equity at the same time. So there's a lot there, a lot there to consider when you're starting out on your entrepreneurial path. Yeah. And I think a lot of times with the first or second time founders, it, it's, there's an insecurity, right? Like you don't know if you're doing it right. And it's not like the mark to market is like the, in, in the public equities where you meet it every second. Like you don't really, really know how you're doing for, you know, it could be months, if not years between marks. So you're kind of looking at this valuation as like your report card. And so there's a, there's a vanity, pride, insecurity. It's all wrapped into it. And I think there's a lot of um, mental gymnastics that have to happen around it beyond just, you know, the number itself. Yeah. Cool. So let's come back to Betty a little bit here. And I, I know we're getting to the latter stages of our conversation. I don't want to keep it too long for folks listening, but you, you've launched now in Ontario, correct? So how's that going? What do you view as the path forward from here? We launched, we took our first bet February 21 of this year. And I will say that uh, we had extremely good execution. I have an amazing team. I give them all the credit for this, but we went from no code, not a single line of code to building our own platform, getting it certified by GLI, getting a license from the AGCO and going live in, I think it was seven or eight months. Like it was an insane, insanely quick execution. It was awesome. And I, again, I give my, my team credit, you know, Vlad, Chavdar, Jordan, and the founding engineering team. So since then we've gone live, it's been about three months and I will say we're, we're generating meaningful revenues now without even really trying. We're not pretty much marketing. All we're doing right now is just focusing on the product and, and getting the unit economics to a place where we can invest against them. So what that means is a lot of iteration on the, you know, onboarding players and, and increasing the approval rate on the KYC side to getting more games into the lobby to building out some of our USP, just being laser focused on that. So we're spending like maybe 10K a month now in marketing just to test, but it's, it's working. So it's, it's going really well. And I'm glad you brought up your team and, uh, you know, I don't want to just come past that because I recognize that while you're front and center and this is your idea and your vision, you know, it, it takes an army, uh, it takes a team to get this done. I know you've got some fantastic people, many of them, or at least some of them who, who were equity stakeholders with you in the, the QL gaming journey. You've also brought now one of your investors on board in a full-time capacity, but I don't want to just skim over how valuable that team is and the success of what you're doing going forward. But I think where my question is within that is, is, you know, not just your team, but one of the things that from the outside looking in, I've always really admired about what you do is how well you communicate and, and how well you communicate, not just with your team and your, and your business partners, but how well you communicate with your investors and, and advisors who in effect are partners to you as well. And I oftentimes tell people that of all the businesses I've been involved with going back to your QL days, the way in which you did your reports monthly for your investors, keeping people up to speed was to me, the gold standard in terms of here's what's going well, here's what some of our challenges are, here's what's not going well, here's our failures and here how we're going to correct them. And here's how I need help from all of you. So there's some lessons in there for entrepreneurs. I'm not sure if you can speak to that at all, but I'd love to hear any commentary you might have on that and the team that you surround yourself with and how you use your investors to kind of grow the tan and grow your business. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying all that. I look at communications, whether it's to investors or internally, as really an exercise for myself to collect my thoughts. So when you approach it that way, it's really like you have these different building blocks in your head and you're just trying to organize them in a way that makes sense. And so once it starts clicking for you, then it can start clicking for other people. So I, I really see them in short as, as an exercise for, my, for myself, first and foremost. And then beyond that, engaging investors is, is really important. And the way I, one kind of framework I use is, is, you know, figure out what a person is exceptional at and just ask them questions around that or engage them in that one thing. Um, and that's something I've done that's been really helpful in, in engaging and connecting and just making relationships grow, especially investors or advisors. You don't want one person, you, you can't expect one person to solve all your problems. So, so again, it's doing the homework, figuring out what they're uniquely positioned to help you with and then right, go all in on that. Yeah, that's something that you do really well. I, I kind of want to close this out with, with, you know, coming back to Betty. For you, what is success for Betty? Success for me is building a product and a business that I'm really proud of. A business that's like just super elegant, not only in the design and the look and feel, but the numbers and just creating just music, I guess, within the numbers as well. And it's like, wow, this thing is just awesome. It's just great. It's almost like, I just want to produce something at the highest level in the industry and have the industry look at it and be like, this is, this is some of the best work in the space. Yeah. Look, this has been really fun, Justin, having you on here. It's been great. And, you know, you allude to this being kind of you as a career entrepreneur and, and it's interesting to categorize yourself that way and your first venture and then your second and now with the third being ready to go for the bigger camp and the kind of swing into some fences. Not that dissimilar if you look at like of uh, Miami, like a Joey Levy, his first start of draft plots and, uh, and then from there moved to a second company, simple, and now on to better, uh, or, or Jeremy Levine or some of the other folks who had some earlier successes at different degrees and levels and now stepping into really all three of you into some really significant and, and well-funded B2C businesses. So it's going to be fascinating to see how all of this plays out. And for folks that want to get in touch with you, uh, uh, be it to discuss uh, opportunities, synergies, looking for jobs, et cetera, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or your company? Yeah, I'm not big time enough where I, I won't share my email. So it's just jpart at bettygaming.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Or they can find you at the conferences, walking around in uh, the Montclair vest and the baseball hat. Justin yeah. Park, third time entrepreneur. Uh, what did you call yourself? Cultural anthropologist? Cultural anthropologist. And all, and all around good dude. Thanks for joining us, Justin. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Benji.